calls for from us and on where it's taking us. Now, last week, Pastor David showed us that the kingdom costs everything that we have. It's a very hard truth, but he also showed us even more importantly, not just what it costs, he showed us the attitude that we pay that cost, and that is that we pay it in our joy. We pay it gladly. We are absolutely astounded that we have stumbled across this amazing treasure. After having ignored God, God is not ignoring us. Instead, he's moving toward us, and he's embracing us, and he's opening his arms wide to us. And as you allow that truth to sink in, you can't imagine your good fortune. You can't believe that this is actually something that has been given to you. You start to wonder, does anybody else know about this? <laughs> Why doesn't everybody want to get in on this? And then sadly, you live inside the kingdom for a little while, and some of that joy starts to dissipate. And you start to understand not everybody is always excited about it as much as when you first came into the kingdom. And yet joy is essential to the kingdom. You cannot have the kingdom of God without joy because joy is essential to who God is. It's just part of what comes out of him. So if we are going to be people who also reflect that joy, if we are people who gladly give everything up in order to live in this kingdom with joy, and if we're going to uh, be people to invite other people into this kingdom, then we're going to have to understand why is it that we don't have joy? What, what, what happened to the joy that we once had? And we need to understand what is it that defeats joy? So for the next three weeks in this series, we're going to look at what steals joy, what takes away our joy. And we want to think very carefully, not about what takes away joy in general, but what specifically takes away joy for our region, for professionals who live in the suburbs of Philadelphia. So we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at wealth, apathy, and religiosity. We'll take one each week, wealth, apathy, and religiosity. And we want to do this for two reasons. First, we want to understand for ourselves what is it that takes away joy. We want to understand what that what takes it away from the people around us as we communicate to them the kingdom. But we don't just want to become experts at pointing out bad stuff. We want to become experts in understanding how the gospel restores joy, how the gospel comes to us so that we be, are a church that embraces, continues to embrace the kingdom of God with joy, regardless of what the kingdom costs. So this morning, we'll focus on how wealth can steal joy, but listen even more carefully for how the gospel restores joy. Now, we just heard in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, that there is a man, Matthew tells us that he's young, who comes running up to Jesus and he has a question. And if you were there, you would probably like this guy because there's an eagerness about him. He's running. There's a humility about him. He kneels before Jesus. He's respectful, calls him good teacher, obviously cares about the scripture, has been trying to obey the scripture. And yet when he asks his question you realize that his question does not fit into a biblical worldview. You say, well, wait a minute, Bill. Of course it does. He's asking how he can have eternal life. Yes, but notice how he asks. Maybe it'd be more helpful if we notice first how he doesn't ask. He doesn't come up to Jesus and say, good teacher. 2,000 years ago, Father Abraham believed that God would give him a righteousness that he didn't have. How do I get that kind of external righteousness that I don't have? That would be a biblical worldview question, a worldview that understands that God is the one who initiates relationship, and we are the ones who respond. This man asks a different kind of question. Verse 17, he asks, what must I do 
to inherit eternal life. Not what must God do, but what do I need to do? In other words, this man is treating the kingdom of God like it's a business transaction. He's coming thinking, okay, here's what I've won. I've decided that. And now what do I have to do in order to get that? It's not really a big surprise. He's a man of means. He's a wealthy man. And therefore, he would be familiar with the world of business deals. Whether he earned his wealth or whether he inherited it, he would understand the nature of contracts, the nature of obligations. A world of, if I put so much in, then I expect that I should receive so much in return. And so he approaches Jesus with this same kind of logic, only that's not the logic of the kingdom of God. See, you don't come to God in his kingdom and say, God, you've got a commodity that I'd be interested in adding to my portfolio. How do I go about doing that? That is the logic of the business world. You decide that you are going to invest a portion of your time, a portion of your assets, a portion of your energy, and you expect to receive a product, a service, some kind of education in return. You give a little, you get a little, you give more, you get more. But essentially, you are giving something to add something to what you already have. And that is not the way the kingdom of God works. And so Jesus, in that very abrupt initial response, is trying to reset this guy. He's trying to invite him into a different worldview. And essentially, he's saying to the young man, if we're going to have a meaningful conversation about eternity, we cannot start first by talking about you and what you do. We need to start first by talking about God. So let me invite you into a different worldview, a different way of thinking and understanding all of life, which will affect then the way that we talk about eternal life as well. And so Jesus begins by saying, let's talk about God's essential nature first. God is good. You want to use goodness like it's a polite address. Oh, good teacher. It's not the equivalent of sir or mister. Instead, if you live in a sin-cursed, fallen, broken world, sin is a character trait of which there is very little. In fact, the way that God has it is it is utterly unique. God alone is good. God alone has never placed one foot wrong. God alone has never said anything foolish. God alone has never thought anything wrong about anyone or anything. And if you don't understand that kind of goodness, Jesus is saying, then you will completely misunderstand everything else that we're talking about here. So with that kind of goodness in mind, now you want to know what you need to do in order to live with that kind of a God forever. Okay, Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. They express his heart. They express his kind of goodness. He's never murdered anyone, never wished out of existence someone. He's never been unfaithful to anyone He's never taken anything that isn't his. He's never lied about anyone. He's never lied to anyone. He's never wanted what wasn't his. He's never dishonored anybody. If you want to be with him forever, if you want to have eternal life, then you have to have his kind of goodness. You have to be like him. Now, that should have been a wake-up call. And the young man should have figured out, oh, wow, we're, we're talking about something that's just completely unattainable. And the young man misses it. So without skipping a beat, he says, well, all, all of those I've kept from my youth. I've been doing them for a long time, I'm doing them now. What, what else you got? You think, how can you be that clueless? We read through the Westminster Shorter Catechism questions, and, and I'm convicted every single week. How can you be that clueless? Okay, logically, there are two options. Option one, he has this overinflated sense of his own goodness. 
He really thinks that he is good in the way that God is good, except that doesn't really fit because he comes to Jesus with this nagging concern, this sense that something's not right. He knows he's been obeying the commands, but he's not really fully certain that he has eternal life. Doesn't come off as arrogant. He's teachable. Option one doesn't really fit. Option two, he has an underinflated sense of God's goodness. He's brought God's goodness down to a more attainable level. Seems more likely given Jesus' response to him. Jesus does not mock him, doesn't roll his eyes, doesn't tear into him and say, do you even hear yourself? Instead, Jesus does what he loved him. He sees in front of him a serious, determined young man who just has no idea how impossible the road is that he's set himself on. And that just makes sense. Because this man was living in a culture that promoted legalistic righteousness. One of the commentators has said that in that world, a rabbi could speak, quote, in all seriousness of people who had kept the whole law from A to Z. It's that same kind of world that Paul the Apostle came out of, who says in Philippians 3.6, that according to legalistic righteousness, he had been faultless. It was a world that brought God's goodness down to a manageable level, an attainable level. And the idea then that you could be good enough for God, that was just part of the air that this young man breathed. And so he interpreted God's commands, the Ten Commandments, through the lens of his culture. You realize that's pretty normal. We humans tend to believe that our thoughts are reasonable. And if what we think is reasonable, well, then we just assume God thinks the same kind of thing. And so we regularly do this. We regularly take concepts that are out there in our culture and we read them back into what God has said. So we'll take things like individualism, materialism, egalitarianism, sexuality, honor and respect, and we'll look in the scripture and go, oh, look, scripture agrees with me. It's reasonable. Never occurs to us that God might have a very different take on something that just seems so obvious to us. We don't think that he would disagree with us because what? That, that would mean then that he was unreasonable. So it never occurred to this young man, there is no possible way for a mere human being to keep the Ten Commandments in every possible way so that you end up with the same kind of goodness that God has. Never occurred to him that God thought differently than he did. He fit into his culture, and he read the Lord through the lens of his culture. And so Jesus does what? He looks at him, doesn't walk away, doesn't quit. Instead, he says, come on, I'm going to try to bring you up out of your culture. Let me help you understand a different worldview. Verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, Jesus just looked at this man and said, would you like to be my disciple? If Jesus was here in this very moment, and he said to you, would you like to be my disciple? You're all in, right? This man is not. He walks away sad. It's an invitation he can't accept. And the reason, verse 22, is because he had great wealth. Make sure you get the contrast here. He comes to Jesus and he wants to have a conversation. He wants to talk about eternal life. 
But then at some point, he stops talking about Jesus, no longer interested in that, because in his mind, what Jesus is offering just does not measure up to what he already has. And what he has then becomes a barrier to following Christ. Eternal life, in his mind, is just not, it's just not worth the cost. Now, you need to be very careful here at this moment. Because when you see what Jesus, when you hear what Jesus says to him, there are two easy, I'm going to say it this way, wrong ways of understanding those commands, that command. You can either walk away thinking, well, Jesus meant that command for everyone, or you can think Jesus meant that command just for this one guy. Okay, either it was a teaching for how to handle wealth and riches in general that applies to every person at all times, or... It was a particular instruction given to a particular person in a particular social location for a particular purpose. Two easy wrong ways of understanding what Jesus is doing here. If you go down that first road, you will develop a theology that says being wealthy is bad. If you have more than you need, you are not following Jesus. The solution then is to feel bad about that until you start giving stuff away. If you go down the opposite road, on the other side, you'll develop a theology that opens the door to thinking this way. Being wealthy is never a problem. Instead, it's the blessing of God. What do you do with, blessing of, with the blessing of God? You always want more and more and more, and you keep as much blessing as you possibly can. In other words, that first road will lead you down the road toward guilt. The second road will inflame greed. Notice that neither road will ever lead you to joy. And that's your first tip-off that this is not biblical theology. If you have theology that lines up with the way that God understands the world, it will always lead to some part of the fruit of the Spirit. It will lead to joy. Or you could go back into the text, and you could realize that you can do your Bible search program on your own. You can, you'll discover that this is the only record of, that we have of Jesus saying to anyone who was wealthy, give everything up, sell it, and then come follow me. Only guy. You can find other scriptures where, it talks, where the scripture talks positively about the things that God gives to his people. So you can't look at this verse and say, this verse is trying to say that wealth is a bad thing. That's not Jesus' point here. On the other hand, verse 28, Peter looks at Jesus and says, but we all did that. In other words, the disciples had the, op- the, had the option of do you want to follow Jesus or do you want to keep what you have? And they said, we'd rather follow Jesus. Now, how do you put those two things together? That Jesus did not always tell people to give everything away that they had, but that at other times, clearly, that was the implication. Those two applications only make sense if you understand that there is an underlying principle of which those two applications are particular case studies of that principle. What is that underlying principle? It's that if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, you cannot hold anything back from Jesus. Doesn't matter whether we're talking about wealth, family, reputation, whatever. You have to come holding everything in your hands loosely so that if Jesus says, now I want you to give me that, then you do. And here it's helpful if you remember what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is the reign and rule of God. It's the kingship of God. So when you are entering into the kingdom of God, you're saying, God, there is no better world that I could possibly be part of than the one that you rule over. And therefore, I want to come into your kingdom and have you be my king. I want you to be Lord over me. 
In other words, the nature of the kingdom of God is not, I'm sorry, the nature of the kingdom of God is that you are coming to the king. And when you come to a king, especially this king, you don't come to him and say, okay, Jesus, here's the deal. I will be your subject. You may command me, except in this area. Oh, and, and, and maybe this one. And this one and this one. And this one. Okay, these are off limits. I really don't want your input on these. I will take care of these. I will be in charge of these. All else you can tell me what to do. And okay, does, does that work for you? Are, are we good here? And you realize, no, of course not. You're not. That's not how it works. So when Jesus is talking to the rich young man, he is putting a very fine point on his kingship with this man. He singles out the man's possessions and says, do you understand I'm the king and therefore I'm in charge of that? Now the question is why? Why does Jesus assert his kingship over this man in this way at the start of their relationship? Well, look at the result, verse 22. The man is disheartened, goes away sorrowful. Jesus put his finger on the thing that the man most wanted to rule over the thing that he didn't want anyone else making decisions about. There's something about these possessions that's more important to him than Jesus was. If you think about it, that's kind of odd. He had lots of stuff, great possessions, I get that. But he and Jesus are talking about something that's even bigger. They're talking about eternal life. And Jesus said, just said to him, look, you're unsure about your future. You don't know that you have eternal life. I can help you be sure. It won't be because of you keep on doing all kinds of things. Sell everything that you have, follow me. If I refer back to last week's message from David on, on the parables of the field, Jesus is saying, live out the parable. You've just stumbled over a treasure in the field. You didn't know who I was. You thought I was a good teacher. You just found out that I'm a whole lot more than that. Now sell everything and come follow me. And the man does not do that in his joy. Instead, he leaves sad. He doesn't see the value of eternal life when it's compared to what he's already holding. And there's something insane about that. Because at some point, he's no longer going to be able to hold on to what he's holding on to. Okay, just think a little bit down the road, right? Just a hundred years from then, from that point, whatever he's holding while he's talking to Jesus, he will not be holding in a hundred years. And Jesus just offered him the opportunity to hold what? To hold eternal life instead. But he lets go of that so he can hang on to what he has. And in that moment, he just helped you understand something about worship. Now, when we talk about worship, we often mean singing or we mean coming together and having an opportunity to be together. And worship does mean all that, but there is a deeper, more rich meaning to the word worship. What is worship? It means that we find our ultimate meaning, our ultimate value in something. And when we find our ultimate meaning and value in that something, we take and wrap our entire lives around it so that we can get it, so that we can keep it. Because we just can't imagine a good life without having that thing. And whatever it is that you worship, that will control you. It'll control how you think, it'll control what you feel, it'll control what you do, what you say. So if that, what you worship, is Jesus, you'll let everything else go except him. But if what you worship is something else, you'll let Jesus go so that you can have that thing. Now, if you don't know what you worship, 
It's a very easy way to tell. Here's a question. If you had to let go of everything in your life, money, career, friends, family, reputation, health, your looks, Jesus, if you had to let go of everything in your life for whatever reason, what is the last thing that you're holding on to? What is the one thing that we would have to pry your hands off of? That last thing is what is of most ultimate value to you. That is what you worship. And what you worship will control the decisions that you make. Even if, like for this man, it means that what you're holding onto so tightly, you're going to let go of in a couple decades. This man went away sad because Jesus made it very clear. You can't have that and me at the same time. And the man said, I'd rather have that than you. Jesus then turns to his disciples, verse 23. And he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And as soon as he says that, you and I need to pay really close attention. Because regardless of how you measure it, we live in one of the wealthiest nations in the world. Jesus is talking to us. We're the rich young man in that moment. And he just told his disciples that there is something about wealth that makes it difficult to enter into the kingdom of God if you have it, which we do. Something about wealth that makes it easy to worship, something that makes it easy to hang on to, even if that means letting go of Jesus. You think, well, what is that? What, what, it, it, what does wealth offer that makes it such a good deal? You realize wealth offers you an awful lot. Wealth offers to comfort you. It offers to fill your stomach, to give you air conditioning in the middle of the summer, to surround your life with labor-saving devices. Life is just easier if you're well off. Wealth offers to insulate and protect you. When you have plenty, you're less worried about things breaking at home. You're less worried about economic fluctuations outside because wealth promises to replace things and to supply all of your needs. Wealth entertains you. It keeps boredom at bay. It lets you fill up the empty spaces of life so that you never have to just sit around with nothing to do. You can watch things. You can listen to things. You can go places. You can see things. You can do things, things that are interesting, things that are fun. Wealth affirms you, tells everybody around you that you're successful, that you've made it. All you have to do is look at the stuff that you have, and it, it communicates you are a vital, worthwhile, productive person in the society. Wealth brings power. People know that wealthy people can get things done, and so they're drawn to people who are well off. And if you have wealth, then people will treat you differently. They'll treat you better, actually, if they think that you're a person of means. And then wealth lets you indulge yourself. You can have lots of the things that you want. You can have lots of comfort or lots of protection or lots of affirmation, entertainment, power. You never have to say no to yourself. Wealth offers so much that on a functional level, that means day-to-day, -day, it can easily replace God. It replaces our sense of our need of him. It replaces our dependence on him. Remember, a number of years ago, I was praying through the Lord's Prayer. I would gotten the idea either from a sermon or from the guy who was discipling me, and I would pray one line, and then I'd pause and meditate on that line and allow myself to understand a little bit better, a little bit wider, broader what Jesus was 
saying there and then pray that back to him. It was very good, challenged me. Until I got to the line that says, give us this day our daily bread. And then everything just sort of ground to a halt. And I stopped. I didn't have a whole lot to say. Give us this day our daily bread. Why? I have a pantry full of bread. I don't need today's bread. I have tomorrow's already. I have a fridge full of food. I have a freezer that'll feed me for weeks. I have a pantry full of cans and boxes that'll feed me for months. And when all that is exhausted, I have a bank account. I just restock everything. Give us this day our daily bread. Who needs daily bread? When you can trust in wealth. When you have a bank account, when you have investments, when you have an IRA, a 401k. Do you see the struggle for us? Who needs God if you have wealth? Another aspect of wealth, however, that makes it even more dangerous. Because this aspect is really subtle. It takes place gradually over time. You're not even aware that it's happening. And it's the temptation to always have a little bit more than you already have. I was talking fairly recently to a young couple. They're planning their wedding. And they told me, well, yeah, we just doubled our, our, our budget. You know, if you've planned a wedding, that that's really easy to do. So I said to them, you know, there is no upward boundary of what you can spend for a wedding. I don't care if your budget starts at 10000 or 100000 or well beyond that. There is always something else that you can add for that day. What does that mean? There is no average. There's no average wedding. There's no median because there's no ceiling that you could actually find a median from. That means that you always have the freedom to feel justified in everything that you're pouring into your wedding. Because you can always look around somewhere else and say, well, I didn't have that, and I didn't have that, and I didn't have all those other things. Therefore, it was reasonable. While your budget just keeps increasing, 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 increasing. It's not just true of weddings. You all know how this works. Same is true of things like your food budget. You can always spend more on food. That's easy. Or think about your electronics. You can always have ones that are newer. Size of your home, it can always be bigger. Your apartment can always be larger. Where you go on vacation, there is always one more cool spot that you haven't been to yet, and you can always stay longer when you get there. Emergency funds, rainy day emergency funds, they can always be larger. Your portfolio investments, they can always be larger because there's always another opportunity. And because you can always spend more in each of those areas, you just sort of get comfortable with that idea of spending more. And you tend to look to that next level. What happens, though, when you hit that next level? Well, it just feels normal. That's the new normal. You don't feel greedy. You don't feel indulgent. And you start what? You start looking at that next level because it doesn't feel all that far away any longer. We have words for this. Lifestyle inflation, lifestyle creep. It's the same thing. It's like being that proverbial frog in a pot of water that's boiling, starting to boil, slowly coming to a boil. You're being cooked alive while you're completely unaware of what's going on. Once you start down the road of worshiping money because of what it will do for you, it's very hard to stop. And if you keep going down that road just a little ways, it starts to take you away from Christ. That's what Jesus sees when he looks at this young man. 
He sees that his possessions are controlling him, consuming him, that he's in this never-ending cycle, being held prisoner. But make sure you see this. Jesus doesn't look at him and then turn away in disgust. He looks at him and loves him, wants to free him. And so he says to him, get rid of all that stuff. It's controlling you. Choose better. Choose me. In just a few words, he has put his finger on the issue of this man's idolatry, on what he worships instead of God, and he reveals it to him. The man is no longer clueless. The frog now knows how dangerously hot the water is. What is that? That's love. It's what real love does. It steps into your world, not to make you feel good, but to help you see what you absolutely have to see, even if you don't want to see it. Very important that you understand this, what I'm about to say. God is not interested in making all your dreams come true. It's not his goal in life. He's not interested in making all your dreams come true. He's not interested in making all my dreams come true because he knows that you and I tend to sometimes, often, dream of things that are not good for us. What is God interested in? He's interested in giving you better dreams. But in order to do that, he will often talk to you about the horror of what you've chosen for yourself. That's real love. It's direct. It's clear. It's not always easy to hear. But it's not harsh. Because what God really wants is what's best for you. And so if possessions have captured you, you can expect Jesus to put his finger on that and to call you out. And if possessions have not captured you, you can expect Jesus to put his finger on whatever has captured you and call you out. He's the king. And this is one of the ways that he expresses his kingship. He calls his people to obey him. Not because he's an insecure king on a power trip who just sort of needs other people to feed his king, kingly sense of himself. He demands your obedience because it's good for you. Okay, do you see how the problem here is not money? That's why Paul the Apostle can say to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.10, that the root of all evil is not money. The root of all evil is the love of money. It's the worship of money. And that's why Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them how difficult it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. He says it two times just to underline, this is really important, guys. And then he gives them this ridiculous image, this the largest animal that they can conceive of in their world, a camel, squeezing itself through the tiniest slot that they're thinking that they have in their world, the eye of a needle. And you realize that when he gives them that picture, he's just raised the bar again. Jesus is not saying to them, man, this is hard. <laughs> if you're wealthy, you're going to have to work and work and work and work and work. But it's possible. And therefore, if you put in enough effort, you can make it. Here's what you have to do to inherit eternal life. Instead, what Jesus says is the opposite. He says, it's impossible. The disciples understand what he's saying. The first time he says it, verse 24, they're amazed. Second time, verse 26, they're exceedingly astonished. They want to know, who can be saved then? Because from within their worldview, wealth is what? It's an indicator of God's favor. So the more that you have, the more that God likes you. And if the wealthy, those who have the most, are not going to be able to get into the kingdom any more than a camel can fit through the eye of a needle, 
Well, who can be saved? And Jesus says, exactly. No one can. If you're relying on your own good works, if you're going to start the conversation by asking, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? The answer is, not ever enough. And if you miss that, Jesus makes it extremely plain. Verse 27, with man it is impossible. And then you get that gospel but, that wonderful little word, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. This God who is good beyond our imagining knows that left to ourselves, we will never enter his kingdom because we will never willingly, gladly, joyfully obey him on our own. And yet there's still hope for us, which is great news. And it's great news for this region because there is hope for our friends, there's hope for our neighbors, there's hope for the people that we go to work with who live in one of the wealthiest nations of the world. There is hope because of this Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate rich young man. But he's a rich young man who wanted the kingdom of God more than he wanted anything else. And so he lived out every single thing that he told the man in front of him to do. Go. He checks that box off. When the father said go, Jesus went. He went from the father's side. He left heaven, came down to earth. Sell all. Checks that box off as well. Rich beyond our imagining. Out of his mind comes all of the universe. And he leaves that all aside to enter into a life of poverty. For what? To give to the poor doesn't matter how many possessions you have, if you don't recognize the God who has made you and keeps you alive and comes down to meet you, you're poor. This man that he's talking to is poor. And in return for Jesus giving everything up, selling it all, coming to give to this man, the man ignores him. Others be more aggressive. They would question him, question his authority. They'd resist his kingship. They would plot to remove him from this world, which means that even while he's talking to this young man, Jesus is not done selling all. There's still a road in front of him. In order to obey his father, he's going to still have to endure suffering. He's going to have to go to his death. And Jesus knew that. Right after this passage, he looks at his disciples and says for the third time, we're going to Jerusalem where I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be killed, and then I will rise again. And he did it willingly. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Jesus, who for the joy, there's that word again, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. He did not enjoy the cross, but there was something beyond, something that he was looking forward to, some treasure that he had been promised. And for that treasure, that joy, he went through the cross. You think, what was that treasure? What, why go through all of this? What was it that he actually got at the end of this that he didn't have before he started? What was worth giving everything up for? You think, okay, well, what does he have in heaven now? Well, he has glory. Yeah, but he had glory before he left heaven and came to earth. Well, he's united with his father. He had a perfect relationship with his father before he left heaven and came to earth. Go through the list of all the things that he has in heaven now, and there's only one thing that he didn't have before. That's his people with him in the kingdom of God, 
under the reign and the rule of God. And that was so important to him that he, this immense camel beyond your imagining, shrunk himself down to go through the most impossibly narrow little space with joy to have you. Do you find wealth attractive? You haven't looked at Jesus then. You haven't seen who he is. You could not afford an ounce of this love, and he would freely give it to you this morning. And he would pour it out and pour it out and pour it out until you couldn't stand it. About to share in the Lord's Supper right now, where we actually get a sense of what it is that Jesus did. Let me invite you. Spend some time. Let's all spend some time in prayer now. Quietly on your own, just thinking, talking to the Lord, asking him to, to let you value the riches of what he's offering you, asking him to free you from every wrong worship, to give you a taste of what real joy is. Come to him, ask him to free you, and you know what he will, because he says it's impossible for you, but with him it's possible. Spend some time in prayer.